Uhuru. You're listening to the Reparations in Action podcast and FM radio show. Broadcast live every Tuesday at 12 p.m. on Black Power 96.3 WBPQLP St. Petersburg, Florida. And now available as a podcast as well. You can follow Reparations in Action on Podbean at uhurusolidarity.podbean.com. That's uhurusolidarity.podbean.com. My name is Jamie Simpson. We have an amazing show today. Every week, Reparations in Action discusses some of the most pressing issues of these times of a colonial system that is in profound crisis. We sum up the events as white people who are in solidarity with the African Revolution and through the eyes of the African working class and the political theory of African internationalism. Uh, the theory of African revolution developed by Chairman Omalia Shetela. Under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party, we believe reparations is a question that demands action on the part of European or white people. As always, we'd like to begin by giving a big salute to Black Power 96.3 WBPU LP St. Petersburg and the African People's Education and Defense Fund, the nonprofit that guides the work of Black Power 96, whose mission statement is to address the grave disparities that the African community or Black community faces in uh, economic development, human rights, health, health care, and uh, education. So um, we'd like to uh, begin also. I, I want to begin by giving a big salute to my co-host and uh, engineer extraordinaire. He is also the chair of the Uhura Solidarity Movement, Jesse Neville. And we'd also like to begin uh, saluting our incredible guest. She's known uh, through electoral politics as Erica, uh, Erica, I'm sorry, Aretha Akile Canyon. She is director of agitation and propaganda, Akile Anai. We are honored to be joined by her. She is the director of agitation and propaganda for the African People's Socialist Party. Director Akile is well known for running for political office here in St. Petersburg, Florida in 2017 and 2019 as the first reparations candidate who brought the struggle for black self-determination into the electoral arena under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party and Chairman Amalia Shetela, who himself ran for mayor in the early 2000s. Director Akile is also responsible for leading the party's massive agitation and propaganda department or agitprop, which is responsible for producing the Burning Spear newspapers, books, uh, pamphlets, online broadcasts, and so much more. So we'd like to begin uh, this discussion with Director Akile by addressing something in the news recently. So there was a Florida appeals court that overturned a decision made by a judge to the state's requirement that ex-felons would have to pay all court fees for their right uh, to vote to be restored. Many people celebrated the passing of Amendment 4 two years ago until it was revealed that a significant number of mostly African people whose voting rights had been taken away from them would not have their voting rights restored. Here is what was reported in the Tampa Bay Times, quote, a federal appeals court on Friday overturned a judge's ruling that people with felony convictions don't have to pay off all court fees and fines before voting, dealing a setback to advocates for, for 2018's Amendment 4. In a six to four ruling, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit ruled that the plaintiffs included more than a dozen people with felony convictions who accused Governor Ron DeSantis and Florida lawmakers of imposing a poll tax by requiring them to pay off all court-ordered costs relating to their felony convictions before voting. So, uh, Director Akile Anai, welcome to Reparations in Action. 
Ahuru, Jamie. Thank you. And Ahuru to Jesse. Thank you guys for having me on today's show. We're honored and excited. We're, we're so thrilled that, that you're here. It's, it's, it's really an honor. And uh, re regarding um, this whole question of these outrageous hoops that they're making African people uh, go through just, just to vote. When, when you ran for office, both in 2017 and 2019, that was an issue on your platform, full restoration of voting rights for ex-felons. Why has this issue always been so important to you? And, and what is your response to this Florida of Appeals court decision? Yeah, I really appreciate this question. Um, and I think that this is one of the greatest examples of how the uh, bourgeois electoral arena is not actually meant for the participation of the masses and particularly the African working class. And that, you know, the electoral process that, um, you know, uh, tries to uphold quote unquote democracy in the U.S. Um, is not an actual practice of upholding the democratic rights of African people. Um, and, you know, that this is just a really great example of how that is the case. Um, and, you know, this question of even, um, you know, them, you know, the, the bourgeoisie doing exactly what you think they would do um, in terms of making sure that the masses of um, particularly African working class people that are impacted every single day by what, you know, the government and the imperialist world leaders, um, you know, whether it be on the Florida state level, the local level, or um, the representative, the highest representatives of US imperialism, that to not allow Africans to be able to participate um, in the process of being able to determine who is going to represent us. Um, and, you know, there's so much that we can say about that in the electoral process in general, um, and especially with the fact that even if Africans who are, um, um, you know, labeled as convicted felons were able to participate in the electoral process, there wouldn't be anything for African people to vote for anyway. So that's, you know, that's a whole nother aspect of this question. But, you know, it's a really um, important um point for us within the African People's Socialist Party and the reason it was on our platform was um, part, part of um, us exposing this contradiction, one, and two, because it does remove Africans from this process of the, elect the elections. And there is no, I mean, you have the statistics being the hot, that the, those who make up the prison, the, the highest number of people who make up the U.S. prison population in this country are African and Mexican people. So it's not a coincidence that the majority of people that will be impacted by this type of decision would be African and colonized people who are mostly impacted by the conditions of colonialism, imperialism, parasitic capitalism. So, which is everything the electoral process is attempting to uphold. So you have um, the situation now where Africans, you know, not only get uh, thrown into prison um, as a part of being, as a part of the process of being colonized, but then our ability to uh, be able to participate vote for something that actually represents our interests is taken away for us to be able to challenge the bourgeoisie in their own arena. Um, you know, it, it, it obviously presents these limitations. When we were running for office in St. Petersburg, Florida, we ran into a situation where Africans in the South side, the most impoverished um, community in St. Petersburg, where the doors you would knock on, most of African men would say they cannot vote because they're um, a felon. My dad could not vote for me 
on two occasions because he's a felon. And um, that would, and, and even African women can't vote because their rights have been taken away, um, you know, because they've been labeled as a felon. So we saw this, and, and but they, they would say, we would vote for you. They volunteer for the campaign. It was, I mean, they were part of the political process, but to exercise their vote, to vote for something that was meaningful, to vote for black power in the form of our electoral campaigns that were calling for reparations and economic development is a strategic move on behalf of the bourgeoisie to make sure that Africans cannot have their interests represented in this arena. So it was very important to include this on our platform, not as a pandering gimmick, but as a real struggle against the bourgeoisie for it's for the blatant, um, you know, keeping out Africans out of this process to show this process not really working in the interest of our people and to show every time how they would attempt to keep Africans from being able to fight for our own interests, for the real democratic rights of our community. So, Uhuru. Wow. Thank you for that, Director Akili. It really is blatant this uh, denial of any kind of democracy to African people in the U.S. And, you know, Chairman Omalia Shetela has stated that uh, bourgeois elections in the United States are nothing but a nonviolent contest between competing sectors of the white ruling class for control of the state. Could you speak to that deeper question, to this insightful statement by Chairman Amalia Shetela, and how that relates to the current presidential contest between Joseph Biden and Donald Trump? Yeah, it's such a profound, um, you know, like statement the chairman has made about the election is just summing it up. This is when I want to salute my leadership, Chairman Shatella, and just his ability to be able to just really package our whole understanding of what the elections are about, because you know, if people are still confused about why they cannot see themselves and their interests and why they are disenchanted with the elections, this is the explanation that the elections are here as a process for the white ruling class to contend for power, um, you know, nonviolently. Like that's what that's what the contest is, and it has nothing to do with the people. Has nothing to do with the masses at all. And in fact, it just like this um, example of keeping people out of the elections through the whole question of denying people the right to vote um, because of felony convictions. I mean, the whole pro the whole electoral process in general. It's so complicated to understand, first of all. It's not It's not even, oh, you go cast your vote and the, the one who gets the most votes wins. That's not even how it works. <laughs> so, you know, it's like the whole um, process in itself is supposed to keep the people out and is only supposed to allow the select few, you know, the, the, the ruling class, the ability to be able to participate. The fact that you have both of these presidents who rake in millions of dollars for a political campaign speaks to that question. This is big money interest and investment into upholding the capitalist system. So, and then, and then I think, um, you know, the, one of the things that, you know, in terms of chairman summing it up as a, a nonviolent contest, you have Trump and you have Biden who are the most, are obviously the same person they're the same person. They're not, I mean, they're not, they're not, uh, I mean, they don't, I mean, I can't even talk about platform. There is no platform. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's nothing that, and it's just like, it's, and people have realized that and, 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 and are saying, you know, I have to, like chairman says, you know, he's, I have to hold my nose to go vote 
for Biden because I just don't want to Trump. And it's like this voting out of fear thing, but not because there's anything legitimately better about Biden, you know? And quite frankly, Biden's even scarier because the, 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 the crimes are right there in front of your face. And to be able to, to have to say, okay, well, I have, to, because I'm afraid of Trump, I have to go vote for Biden, I think is like one of the greatest expressions of how, you know, this is literally a competition amongst the ruling class. Like this, that's all it is. And, um, you know, it, it gives this appearance that, um, you know, you can participate. And if you don't participate, then this is why the outcome is the way it is. So this is why we'll have another Trump. But we, we don't have to have a Trump. We don't have to have a Biden. We can have an Obama. We can have all, as long as the social system is intact, which is what the elections are, and, um, you know, uh, created to do and it's to get again it's to give the appearance that there is some kind of say so from the people but there is not it's not a say so and if there was there wouldn't be all of the you know these processes and you know and, and all these things put in place to ensure that people stay out of it and I mean I look at um, the situation in St. Pete and how you know, they set up this thing, they gerrymander the districts, they um, create a, a, a situation where you have a, a primary and a general election and a nonpartisan race. You know, they, you know, have big money back backing and packs and all these kinds of things. And again, none of it is to involve the people in this process to say, this is what we want. This is where we're trying to go. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, it's the people that define everything. The people are the, it's, and I'm not saying the people in abstract, I mean, you know, African working class, the colonized masses, the workers, you know, they are the ones who define where it is that we have to go. But there's this like idea that, you know, the, the ruling class, is, you know, has just, I mean, and it's not an idea, it's, it's reality. They have control over and they dominate this whole process and this appearance that we can play some part in it, but we don't, we don't. And we have the greatest examples being the fact that it's Trump versus Biden who are the same person, I think more explicit, more, you know, apparent than any, than it's ever been. Like they are two, you know, two uh, wings on the same bird. It's the same thing. And you have to, you know, go vote for which ruling representative that you're least afraid of, you know, yep. who you think, yep. you know, taking a ring or something, you know, but it's, that's, yeah, overall. It's really appreciate you summing this up, Director Akile. It's just so astute. And I really appreciate this party you're you're leading like exactly what you mentioned about putting the people in the center is is just what has always amazed me about the african people's socialist party it's just so incredibly important to to keep the people at, at center and you exemplify that throughout your your political career you're you're a lifelong resident here in in saint petersburg if i'm not mistaken and um each time that you ran, run for office, you have passionately spoke out against the, the br brutal conditions of colonial poverty uh, faced by the African community, by, by African people right here being, being gentrified out of their communities by city uh, government plans. And th there was a recent Tampa Bay Times article that uh, was referring to the uh, Tampa Bay Regional equity report that uh, detailed um, some recent statistics regarding disparities faced by uh, colon the colonized African working class and African people here in Pinellas County and the Tampa Bay area. So um, resulting, uh, especially in this time of the colonial virus known as COVID-19. So I just wanted to read a little bit of that for you and, and 
give, give you a chance to respond to these uh, local conditions, Director Akili Anayi. The, the 2020 Regional Equity Report released by the Tampa Bay Partnership in collaboration with the Community Foundation of Tampa Bay and United Way Suncoast revealed 21 indicators related to economic vitality, talent, infrastructure, civic quality, poverty, and employment shows that Tampa Bay's black residents are far more likely to be paid less, living in poverty, and underperforming in schools when compared to the region's white residents. Without intervention, these disparities and others are likely to become more pronounced as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. So key findings from the report include median wages for black work workers, $16.42 in Tampa Bay area, are 21% less than that of white workers. Uh, about $20.90. Only 20% of Tampa Bay's black residents have a bachelor's degree or higher, ranking in the region 17th out of 20 markets. And with or without a college degree, black workers continue to earn roughly 20% less than their white counterparts. Reflecting uh, the persistent earnings gap, black residents in Tampa Bay are more than twice as likely to be living in poverty compared to white residents. Tampa Bay's 13.7% gap between white and black, or uh, white 10.6% uh, um, living in poverty versus 24.3% uh, poverty rates for the black community, ranks 16th among uh, 20 peer markets. Black children in Tampa Bay are almost three times as likely to be living in poverty compared to white children. Tampa Bay's 22% gap between white and black, 13% versus 35% child poverty rates, rank 14th among the 20 markets. Across the region, black residents are much less likely to own their own home. This is an important indicator compared to white residents. Tampa Bay's 32.5% gap between white at 73.3% and black at 40.8% home ownership rates ranks 15th among the 20 markets. Many visitors to St. Petersburg have observed the stark contrast for life of life between life for African people on the south side of St. Petersburg and the wealth of the north side. Director Akile Anayi, could you speak to this grave disparity right here in St. Petersburg? For real, absolutely. And, you know, the statistics that the Tampa Bay Times, that we call the Tampa Bay Slime here, um, you know, uh, puts out, um, you know, and, you know, of course, we don't need those statistics. You know, they're, they're helpful, I guess, to paint a picture for those who may not be able to see it. But for, you know, colonized Africans, you know, we don't, it's the reality. It's the colonial reality. And, um, you know, so it's, and I mean, it's absolutely correct. I mean, you, it's almost like, a, like this mind boggling experience. And maybe it shouldn't be, especially as somebody who's lived here all their life. But I always, always, if I have to go somewhere that's, you know, downtown um, St. Petersburg, and I just, and I come back into my community, and it, it catches me every single time. Every, it's just like, this is the most I mean, it's so, it's so clear. And, you know, sometimes I'm just like, how, you know, who can't see this and, you know, how, so anyway, but it's not about, you know, people can't see it, you know, that's the, the other thing, but, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting because there's this uh, thing that even the St. Pete city government um, in the form of Rick Kreisman and, you know, others, whole administration, um, Rick Kreisman is the mayor of uh, the city of St. Pete. <clears throat> and, 
you know, this whole false lie about how things have gotten better and how we've progressed. And that is Prizman's line, you know, I mean, that is like, you know, just the sunshine city that shines for all and, you know, things are moving forward and, and, it, and it's a line in general throughout the U.S. I mean, Africans, you know, you had an African president, you know, you had, you, you don't, I mean, you can sit with us now, you can drink from our fountains, you can ride the bus and you can sit in the front or the back, you choose like, and there's this um, statement of progress for African people. But then you hear these statistics, which um, most, usually most of the time are not just the same, they're worse than when African, you know, <laughs> 50 years ago. So like in this city in particular, and you know, African people, at, at, you know, at one point we had, I mean, at least we could say we had our own communities, we had our own businesses, we had our own schools, you know, we had our own, we had our culture and it was defined, it was clear and it was, you know, it was, it was still poverty, you know, but it was, it was a sense of sameness, the identity of African people was consolidated in our own communities. And we, you know, work and, and were able to produce for ourselves would produce a certain kind of political consciousness for Africans in this city. And um, of course, then there was the integration and all this other stuff that was supposed to make things, you know, ap again, appear like things were getting better for Africans because we were able to be closer to white people, which was, you know, a ridiculous notion. Chairman says, who would want to do that? You know, you have the white community, which is inflicting this type of brutality on Africans every day that the African workers are not fighting to be closer to the, the people who are brutalizing us. We are fighting for the ability to be able to do for ourselves. And that's something that we had in the city of St. Petersburg 50 years ago, what we can't say today, where today a whole African community is raised over and there's a, um, a, a baseball stadium for a crappy team to play baseball for white tourists and the white community to come out and, and watch on top of the graveyard of what used to be an African community. Um, and okay, so, you know, we have that reality. I mean, you have a situation where, you know, um, Africans were being literally lynched here in this city in 1914. Um, African by the name of John Evans was lynched here in this city. But, you know, Africans are lynched on a daily basis here through the uh, St. Petersburg Police Department at the Pinellas County Sheriff's. And, you know, the continuous stream of deaths that have happened on behalf of the colonial police, you know, in this city. So the conditions for Africans have not gotten any better, despite this myth, this lie. I mean, they just, what did they do? Uh, they painted a mural, you know, in the Southside African community that said Black Lives Matter. But here are the statistics right here to totally, um, you know, um, refute all, like, I mean, the, the city of St. Pete comes out and says, we appreciate Black Lives, we love Black Lives. Kreisman had a whole ceremony of people coming out on their front porches for eight minutes and so and so seconds to, you know, to remember George Floyd and how long he was choked before he was killed by the Minneapolis police. But then you, but on a daily basis, Africans are being choked by this system in St. Pete every single day every single day. Africans lying out here. I mean, it's pouring rain. I mean, I mean, it's like hurricane season here and Africans are homeless, have nowhere to go, have no place for shelter here in this city. So the conditions for Africans have gotten worse 50 years later, again, despite the myth that things are getting better, that things are progressing, that this is a post-racial racial society. And of course, when these things happen that are very clearly anti-African, they have to come out and say, you know, we're not like that. But the statistics speak for themselves and the colonial reality says something different. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah. Thank, 
Thank you. That that's such an important point that you're making, Director Akila and I. And and I, I really appreciate you, you doing that. Um, in, in this period, you know, when we have all this information about the disparities, when when we're we're watching uh, the question of the uh, colonial oppression of African people in the form of, of police reach a crisis, it's so I think important that we understand there's there's a, a sharp divide between the uh, explanations that this system gives and the objective reality, the objective reality that you're laying out, the, Afri the oppression of African people is worse now than it was 50 years ago. It's not a pretty thought, but it's, it's a reality. And, you know, you mentioned things like the dome, you mentioned, uh, I believe you were refer referring to the gas plant district. It's also so important to know uh, that that was raised just in, in 1987. And the effects of that are, are still very severe. So a month ago, uh, Rick Kreisman, Mayor of St. Petersburg, Florida, um, the Rick Kreisman administration and, and St. Petersburg Police Department held a press conference to announce that they would be uh, <clears throat> is, is it, uh, renaming policing. I'm, for, for, forgive me, I'm, I'm mischaracterizing this in St. Petersburg and um, including the creation of community response team that would respond to non-emergency 911 calls. So this is all part of this window dressing that you were describing. Re-imaging is the word that I was misreading, forgive me. So it's, it, it's this reimagining, reimagining, which is a re-imaging, it is window dressing, but the, the, the term that the St. Pete city government is using is a reimagining of the police in St. Petersburg, including the creation of this community response team. We've heard this throughout the country. You know, they're changing things up. They're going to have the police act like social workers. It's going to be fine. So this was announced in response to calls for the defunding of the police department by uh, local activists that have been marching through downtown St. Petersburg. And we really need to sum this up. What, what does this indeed mean? So people have been marching calling for this defund the police through Saint, downtown St. Petersburg for the last 100 plus days. How does the call for defunding the police and or the reimagining of the police differ from what the Uhuru movement is calling for, the Uhuru movement's demand for black community control of the police? And could you uh, tell us what is black community control of police? Uhuru. <laughs> yes, I, I'm, I can't help but almost feel a little bit tickled uh, <laughs> to, for this whole notion. Um, I mean, the... I mean, the question of reimagining the police, right? I mean, and it being a community response team, but you can give it whatever kind of name you want. Who controls the police? That's where we have to get to at the end of the day. Who in the hell controls the police? And a community response team under the leadership, you know, of the bourgeoisie of, um, in the form of Rick Kreisman, you know, and his little puppets and, you know, for, I mean, it's, it's this incredible thing. Who controls the police in our community? So you can call it another name. You can call, you want to call them, a, a, you want to make it sound prettier by giving them more of like a social, social, social workers work for the state. You know what I mean? That's the reality. You know, it's all the same system. And so <clears throat> you can give it another name. You can say, we're going to, you know, um, deploy these types of forces to deal with these kind of situations. And it's still going to be the same system. It's still going to be trying to uphold the same colonial reality that African people have to uh, live under that are dominated by. And the reimagining re the police for us, we did present a plan to reimagine the police and it was called Black Community Control of the Police. Yeah, to a total reimagination of what the police um, would look like in the African community. Because the police as it stands right now, we know stand, uh, serves as a, you know, they are a, a domestic military um, occupying force in the African community who serves the purpose of, up, you know, um, 
of, of protecting the stolen interests and wealth of the white community from African people to which they've stolen it from. So we know that that's the, the existence of the state. The police um, came in to protect the stolen wealth. And that's, that's, that's the purpose that they serve. And the, you know, they are, um, they might have a chief of police, but the chief of police responds to the mayor, you know, so, and is determined and all, and all the whole, the way they function is going to be determined by this administration. So black community control of the police totally takes it out of their hands. And not only that, but says we want to deconstruct the relationship that the colonial police have with the African community. And we want to put power in the hands of the African working class to determine you know, um, and be able to hire, fire, train, and discipline those who would function in our community um, to protect and serve our people. And, you know, who, who knows if we would even call them police, you know, at a certain point. But it's, you know, forces in our community that would actually be responsible for protecting African people, protecting us from the colonial state. And, um, you know, that, I mean, we would be able to have complete control over this process, putting power in the hands, not make, keeping the power, maintaining the power in the hands of our colonial rulers, of the dictators, of the bourgeoisie in the form of Rick Kreisman. That's not what we're calling for. That's what Africans want or need. We don't need another, um, because I mean, the police are different names than what the, um, than what the bourgeoisie called them before. I mean, they, they have changed their name many times throughout history in this country. So we don't need another name change for police. Reimagining police means black community control of the police, which is a totally different definition of how they would function in the first place. And that, you know, part of black community control of the police is, you know, destroying the colonial police in our communities and their whole function. And that they're absolutely unnecessary at the end of the day when Africans are not being robbed, when Africans are not being looted, exploited, killed, raped in our own communities, they're totally unnecessary. When we have power, when we have economic development, when we have the ability to feed, clothe, and house ourselves, the police and their job, you know, that, that it becomes totally irrelevant. It's totally irrelevant when African people have power and the ability to determine our own futures. And when we have the ability to protect and exercise self-defense against, um, you know, our colonial um, rulers. So reimagining police, a genuine reimagining police looks like black community control of the police. And like you said, the window dressing, the, the show, the facade to be able to quell the righteous African resistance that's happening is similar to all the responses of, you know, a lot of these bourgeois rulers, a lot of the local governments and things like that who can't actually speak to and meet the interests of the people and what they're demanding, but have to, you know, give this kind of appearance that this is what they're trying to do. And, um, you know, I also want to say about the whole question of even defunding the police in that I know that there are, you know, when we talk about this resistance that has appeared throughout this country and has rocked the world, um, you know, uh, as a response to, initially as a response to the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis and what we saw happen in this city and cities throughout this country and around the world subsequent, that Africans were not even talking about defund the police. You know, that that's not where we came. We didn't come out of the gate after the murder of George Floyd saying, defund the police and this really like just abstract kind of demand. I mean, Africans came out, I mean, and with a very clear understanding that the police are the enemies. The police are in our communities. They are the ones killing us. They are the ones, you know, brutalizing us on a daily basis. And, you know, like, and, and even in 2014 with the Ferguson rebellions, I mean, the question was not defund the police, it was kill the police. It was, you know, to get these, you know, get this uh, uh, military occupying force off our backs. 
That was the crime. That was the demand. And part of the hijacking of the righteous African resistance has come, has, has been this demand for defunding the police. And not that those who are saying it right now involved in the demonstrations necessarily are, you know, trying to hijack the struggle. And when they say defund the police, there are many genuine forces who believe that to be the solution or, you know, it, so there are many genuine forces obviously out there. But I, I wanted to say about the, the protests in St. Pete that a lot of that, a lot of that has been organized by the city of St. Pete itself, which is a statement of, you know, um, you know, where it is it's trying to take this struggle. And it, it's just toothless, it's meaningless, and, it, you know, they don't have any interest in bettering the conditions of African people in the city, because if they did, they wouldn't have rigged the election to make sure that the reparations candidate would not win. So, yeah. Wow. Thank you for that so much, Akile Anayi. Uh, you know, it sounds like to me what, Part of what you're saying is, yes, defund the police, but it's more than that. You, you've got to deconstruct the colonial relationship that the African community has had to the police by making it something not colonial, by making it something that's anti-colonial from the African working class, from the community that's supposed to be being protected, allegedly. So uh, really, really appreciate uh, and everything that, that, that you've put out. And unfortunately, we're coming to the end of, of our time with you. I hope that you can return to Reparations in Action. For a final question, we wanted to ask if, if you could talk to us about some of the work that you're leading as the Director of Agitation and Propaganda uh, for the African People's Socialist Party. Uh, what, what kind of work are, are you leading right now? And how can people get in touch with you and join the work that you lead? True, yeah. So, um, you know, after the electoral uh, season, we got, you know, the work never stopped. In fact, I was still doing this as a candidate, as the Uru candidate. Um, but, you know, I function as editor in chief of the Burning Spear newspaper. And of course, people can get involved with that, learn more about that at theburningspear.com. Um, you know, if, um, you know, people like journalism, um, but specifically like, you know, African internationalist um, journalism, you know, it's not like regular bourgeois. It's, if you don't like the table, baseline you love the burning spear newspaper <laughs> basically and um so that's you know what i'm uh doing and just so many other uh projects like what we said the whole agiprop apparatus and what it's responsible for the political direction what it is that our party and our movement has to be doing has to promote putting out chairman amalia chatella defining our social media strategies for our whole movement you know there's a lot that comes into this department that you know i um, oversee directly and um, yeah, so it's just a lot going um, on regarding that area of work. And if you're just interested in getting involved with any type of media, um, it, I encourage people to even get involved with Black Power 96, go to blackpower96.org um, and, you know, you can volunteer, um, you know, turn your time into something that is, you know, forwarding the mission to free African people. So it's a Fantastic. lot, but you can get involved. That's blackpower96.org. Fantastic. D Director of Agitation and Propaganda, Akile Anayi of the African People's Socialist Party, thank you so much for joining us today on Reparations in Action. Thank you so much. Jesse.
Now we turn to a discussion with Jesse Neville on the moneyed sector of parasitic capitalism. Uhuru, Jesse. Uhuru, Jamie, how are you doing? I'm well. Good, good to have you here on the show. Good to be here. And I want to salute that. That was an amazing interview with director Akile Anae. That was powerful. Very, yeah. very excellent. And I just wanted to mention uh, that the Uhuru Solidarity Movement St. Petersburg is organizing a teach-in on September 26th at 4 p.m. in Vinoy Park, 701 Bayshore Drive, Northeast. You can uh, register. You can find it on Facebook. And um, it's at The Tomb Teach-In on how St. Pete destroyed a black community to build Tropicana Field. And it's going to be uh, very powerful. And the reason I'm mentioning it, Jamie, is because uh, Director Akile is actually going to be speaking at the teach-in as someone who is uh, not only from this city and represents the interests of the African working class as a leading member of the African People's Socialist Party, but someone who also ran for office twice with the uh, struggle for the land beneath the Travacana field to be returned to the African community as a form of reparations as a key component of her platform both times. So that's going to be a really important event. And I just wanted to make a plug for that and appreciate the incredible interview that you just held with Director Akile. Uhura. Hey, uh, Jesse, is there any contact information? If people want to find out more about that teaching? Absolutely. You can email Pete at uhurusolidarity.org. And you can also call us at 727-888-3797. Sorry, 727-888-3797. So, uh, yeah. So, Jamie, yeah, I wanted to talk about this article that came out. And just in light of those local statistics that you were reading uh, in your interview with Director Akile um, regarding the stark disparities uh, in life faced by African people in Pinellas County and Tampa Bay area. I wanted to take a look at an article. This actually came out a week or so ago in a white left pu publication whose analysis we certainly do not endorse um, called Counterpunch, but they do provide a lot of uh, useful information from time to time, which when put in the proper analysis of African internationalism and the worldview of Chairman Amali Shatella can, uh, can be important to look at. And I, I do want to quickly salute the chairman and salute this radio station, as well as Chairwoman Penny Hess, our usual uh, recurring guest on this program, the chairwoman of the African People's Solidarity Committee, who is only not able to be on due to incredible work happening in St. Louis uh, that she's involved in um, that is going to be unfolding, you know, the incredible struggles that the Uhuru movement is involved there. So she will be joining us next week, and we're looking forward to that. Yeah, so we are. Uhuru. So this article stated, Jamie, it said, since March, more than 58 million people in the United States have filed for unemployment. The Internal Revenue Service now predicts that the U.S. economy will have almost 40 million fewer jobs in 2021 uh, than they predicted before the pandemic as a result of the prolonged economic depression, as it becomes wildly recognized that the economy is not going to bounce right back into full activity and what does that even mean? Uh, even when coronavirus cases do eventually decline and that the current depression will continue for a long time, companies are doing anything they can to drive their stock prices higher. Desperate to maintain their profits, many large corporations are planning massive layoffs and acknowledging that currently furloughed workers are not going to have jobs to come back to. The Wall Street Journal reports a recent study found nearly half of US employers 
that furloughed or laid off staff because of COVID-19 are considering additional workplace cuts in the next 12 months. The companies say low paid workers will be the first to be cut. Twice as many workers had their pay cut by July 1st as during the Bush-Obama recession that began in 2009, according to the Washington Post. More than 10 million private sector workers have had their wages cut or been forced to work part-time. Tesla, the car company run by the billionaire Elon Musk, forced all workers to take a 10% pay cut from mid-April until July. In the same period, Tesla stock skyrocketed and CEO Elon Musk's net worth has now quadrupled from 25 billion to over 100 billion. Business software company Salesforce announced record sales levels one day and laid off a thousand workers the next day. The company's stock rose 26%. On August 18th, a day when 1,349 people died of COVID-19 and tens of millions were unemployed. The S&P 500 stock index hit an all-time record high with tech-focused NASDAQ 100 index already well into record territory. Financial newspapers announced a new bull market, predicting that stock prices would only go higher. The runaway success of the stock market in the present context has come as a shock to many people. Barely two weeks before stocks reached an all-time high, the United States announced the largest three-month fall in the economy since the Great Depression. Even calling it the largest doesn't quite capture the magnitude. The 9.5% contraction from April to June was four times larger than the previous largest drop since the Second Imperialist War. Economies around the world are in free fall. The GDP of the OECD countries, the world's largest economies, fell almost 10% in the same period, four times greater than in the 2009 global collapse. Global GDP is expected to, to decrease by 5% this year, a historic amount. The stock market blithely rushes along as the mega rich try to squeeze the last drops they can out of it ahead of the abyss. Bloomberg News reported that the 500 richest people in the world have increased their net worth by $871 billion so far this year, though the surge in wealth is especially concentrated in the upper ranks of the billionaire's index. During the week of August 24 to 28 alone, the world's 500 wealthiest people increased their wealth by $209 billion. That's in five days. The world's 10 richest billionaires now collectively have more than a trillion dollars. Let me say that again. 10 people possess collectively more than a trillion dollars. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, the richest person in the world by a wide margin, now boasts personal wealth of $204.6 billion. His riches largely came from Amazon stock, which has risen 80% so far this year. Bezos' wealth has nearly doubled during the pandemic, including one single day in which he made $13 billion. So clearly there are two economic realities playing out right now in this crisis of imperialism as the conditions are deepening for African and colonized people. The white ruling class is doing everything they can to squeeze more and more wealth out of African people's uh, stolen labor and into their own pockets. And uh, this article really, as the white left tends to do, uh, obscures the colonial contradiction 
and obscures the uh, colonial conditions faced by African people by portraying this as something that is taking place between the elites and the so-called working class. Uh, they do give some mention uh, very far down into the article of some statistics specifically relating to African people where African men and women have recovered about 20% of the jobs they lost during the pandemic while white men and women have recovered 40 to 45% of the jobs that uh, some 30 to five, uh, 50 million people in the US are at the risk of eviction in the coming months as temporary eviction protections end. And in a recent uh, census bureau, nearly half of so-called Hispanic or Latino or indigenous renters, 42% of black renters said they had no confidence or only slight confidence they could pay their August rent. At the same time, food prices are rising at the fastest rate in nearly 50 years, making meat and eggs unaffordable for many. Uh, the same Census Bureau survey found 20% of Hispanic households with children and nearly a quarter of black households with children say they don't have enough food to eat. And we know, you know, this is a radio station, Jamie, maybe we could talk about this for a second. I mean, this is on Black Power 96. We know that this is an African community radio station. People from the African community that are listening to this and reading these statistics, as Director Akile said earlier, are, are not going to find this uh, terribly surprising because as Director Akile said, uh, African people who are sitting on the hot stove and having to experience these conditions every day, uh, they, they're living these statistics. Uh, it, it doesn't require statistics for African people to see this reality, but we think it is important to bring this to the white population where it is so covered over, where it is so uh, obscured and, and in some cases just outright denied that this is even taking place. Um, and we think this is important uh, in part because we are involved in a campaign to make Wall Street pay reparations to African people, partially because of the acknowledgement of all of the wealth that Wall Street, the ruling elite, the billionaires have accumulated in their own hands off of the suffering and oppression of African people, but also based on an acknowledgement of our own role as white people in also benefiting off of that oppression, not to the same degree as Jeff Bezos, but as you pointed out when you were reading those statistics, even in this city, an African worker is going to get paid 20% less than a white worker. So there's no working class. There's no multiracial working class. There's, there's no white working class. There's the white colonizer nation and there's the colonized African nation. Yeah, one, one, yeah. Of, one of the things, just really agreeing with what you're saying, and I really appreciate you reading this, this article, Jesse. I know we wanted to read it last week and we didn't have time. And I, I just think it's, it's, it's so important to, to understand what, what the heck's going on, you know, that, that, and this is the, the whole like essential worker designation mm -hmm. uh, for, for that colonized African working class. It's just such an insidious term. And we're seeing so many terms like this yep. that suggests that we should just go to sleep about this, that we should just look with, you know, some sort of feeling of pity towards the, the, the bus driver, towards the, 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 the certified nursing assistant, towards the, the, the teacher, the teacher's assistant, so many types of workers right now. And, and if you look at that Tampa Bay Regional Equity Report, you see that even for other white workers, you know, it, yeah, St. Pete is bad. St. Pete is bad for workers, it's true. Even white workers, it's not great compared to other uh, comparable markets, other comparable metropolitan areas. But even, even comparing that low wage white worker to the African worker, there's still a massive gap. And, and this is all, uh, as far as I understand, this is 
pre-pandemic that these statistics were, were put together. We don't even have a fully accurate picture of the hell that, that African and, and indigenous colonized people are, are going through in, in this country right now. So I, I just think that's so important when, when we hear these terms uh, like essential workers, yeah. that, that, that we understand exactly what's being said there. Uh, because often, you know, and another thing that comes to my mind, Jesse, is uh, when we were talking about the Land Reutilization Act um, yeah. and that, that whole concept that they're talking about in St. Louis of let it rot. Yeah. That, that, that just seems so characteristic of colonialism to me. And it, it occurs to me that uh, we need to wake up to that as white people. We need to wake up to this colonial rot because, you know, I, I know it's kind of a hackneyed thing, but eventually it comes around to white workers too. Um, that, that, that's the reality. This, this, this is primarily disproportionately affecting African people, but we're eligible for that rot as well. What do you think of that, Jesse? I think that's an important point, Jamie, and, and um, I think the thing that is so exciting and important about the uh, Make Wall Street Pay Reparations campaign that the African People's Socialist Party called upon the Uhuru Solidarity Movement to do, and you know, which USM being that organization of white people, including white workers who go into the white community and raise the demand for reparations and organize white people into principled uh, solidarity with the African liberation movement and the anti-colonial struggle. The thing that I think makes that campaign so exciting is that it does give white people, including white workers, a way to truly fight back against the filthy white ruling class, the capitalist parasites that are profiting off the oppression and exploitation of most people on the planet Earth in a principled way, not the way that we as white people and white workers have historically done, where we have tried to struggle with our ruling class to make more of the loot stolen from African people available to us or where we have fought to keep Africans out of the labor unions and sometimes even carried out uh, horrendous torture and lynchings and massacres of, of African workers. You know, as Chairwoman Penny Hess often points out, the white working class while being uh, bled dry by the white boss uh, didn't turn around and lynch the white boss. Uh, white workers turned around and lynched African workers. So there was no working class unity between uh, white workers and African workers. And there can be, there can actually be genuine, principled, anti-capitalist unity from white workers with the African workers' struggle by joining the campaign to make Wall Street pay reparations to African people, acknowledging our responsibility, acknowledging our complicity, and acknowledging our genuine interests in joining this struggle on, on the side of the African working class. And, and Jamie, you were there I believe you were there with us when we had a press conference outside of Bank of America a few months ago, and Chairman Amalia Chatella spoke in front of Bank of America about our demand for Bank of America to pay reparations to the Black Power Blueprint. And we, we held it at um, uh, the Bank of America near Publix at, I think it's called University Plaza. And um, there's, there's a, a, a bus stop right there. There's like a few different little bus stops there. So there's a lot of like, you know, working class people and people that hang around that area. And when we started the press conference, uh, sort of a crowd started to sort of form around the chairman when he was speaking. And there were, it was, it was white workers, you know, some of them who were uh, gathering around. And, and at first, um, we were all sort of like, hmm, where is this going to go? You know, with this crowd that was emerging. But people were fired up. People were cheering. People were saying right on and, and really supported what the chairman was saying. So I think people are excited to take on these bankers and white people and, and even white workers are, are given the opportunity now uh, and given the challenge to 
uh, repudiate the, the past or the tradition of opportunism that has characterized the white workers movement uh, for so many generations and to join real class struggle, real class struggle, which is, uh, which is located in the anti-colonial struggle under the leadership of the African working class. It, it, it certainly is, Jesse. And it's just so clear that this is the, the center of class struggle, whether, whether you're a, a white worker, whether you're you know, the middle class, if you can see this contradiction, it's so clear that the solution, as Chairman Amalia Shatella says, is that there must be revolution. There must be revolution, and we know what social force it is that's going to bring revolution. It's the African working class, for, for all the reasons that you just laid out, for the, the, the reason of history. You can't avoid these large historical facts. And I think it's so important that people see that this stance is, is one that we can take in the world. We, yeah. we, we can pick up this mantle. You know, we can respond to this call. And as white people, we must do that if, if we want to sincerely struggle with our own ruling class as opposed to just dissolving into this, you know, colonial rear guard to, to back up whatever uh, the dictator says of, of, of capitalism. And it's a very stark choice. And you, it's, yeah. it really was inspiring to see uh, the dividing line drawn there at Bank of America at University Plaza and, and to see that um, you know, people can choose a, a way forward with solutions. And, and that's the path being laid out uh, right here in this Make Wall Street Pay Reparations campaign uh, that the African People's Socialist Party has called on us to wage. So I, I really appreciate you bringing that, that, that news to us, Jesse. Can you repeat, is there a, 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 can you repeat a website or something for people to Absolutely. get more information? Definitely. UhuruSolidarity.org slash Wall Street is where you can go to find out more information. Join this campaign. It, it's, it's incredible. And it's really just getting started. I mean, we've gotten some national media attention and that's great, but uh, we want to take it a lot further. We want to escalate this struggle. We want to carry out what Chairman Amali Shatella called on us to carry out, which is to haunt the bourgeoisie. Yes. And make it make this inescapable for them. They have to confront this demand and they have to meet this demand. So um, so we are we, we are not satisfied. Let me put it that way. So join this march, uh, join this campaign and also march with us. We're going to be marching in St. Pete on October 17th, marching for reparations to African people, uh, as well as in cities throughout the U.S. And there's more information about that on AhuraSolidarity.org slash march. Fantastic. Jesse, if I'm not mistaken, we're coming come to the uh, end of our program here. I really appreciate uh, your work today as, as, as co-host, as engineer. It's just fantastic. Again, that March for Reparations, if people are interested, is October 17th this year in cities across the United States. You can check out a new video uh, related to that at uhurusolidarity.org slash march. That's uhurusolidarity.org slash march. Also, Omali taught me Sundays, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Chairman Omalia Shatella's Facebook page and youtube.com slash burning spear. Don't miss Omali taught me Sunday study at 8 a.m. Eastern Time with Chairman Omalia Shatella. That's on his Facebook page and youtube.com slash the burning spear. You can also listen to this show, to Reparations in Action podcast, an FM radio show broadcast live every Tuesday at 12 p.m. on Black Power 96.3, WBPU LP, St. Petersburg, Florida, and now available as a podcast as well. You can follow us on Podbean at uhurusolidarity.podbean.com. Thank you so much to Akile Anai, Director of Agitation and Propaganda of the African Socialist Party, Jesse Neville. My name is 
Jamie Simpson. This has been Reparations in Action on Black Power 96.3 WBPU LP St. Petersburg. We'll talk to you next week.